We're looking at Matthew chapter 5 this morning. If you've got a Bible, that's brilliant. We're in the Jesus story. This is actually, good news guys, we're finishing Matthew chapter 5. Oh, I know, it's really good, but Matthew 6 is equally good. Um, chapter 5 has taken a little while, um, and uh, Jesus' message has been live a countercultural life, that this is what it looks like to follow me. You know, you think you're a Christian, does your life look like this? Are you walking in meekness? Are you being a blessing to the people that you're coming across? And um, I think that Jesus has saved, in terms of chapter 5 at least, the most challenging kind of words till the end of the chapter. Um, you might have thought that, I don't know, um, not lusting or keeping your promises or not being angry, um, that that was quite difficult to walk in meekness, to walk as a peacemaker, that they're hard. But just reflecting on these verses that we're going to look at this morning, I think this is the single most difficult thing to do as a Christian, which where Jesus here talks about loving your enemies and blessing those, praying for those who persecute you. So this is a, a, a topic that um, comes up quite a lot. So I just want to pray uh, and ask God to speak to us, really, because we might have heard some of this stuff before, but I think it's something that is important on the heart of God that we would be people that love uh, even our enemies. So let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us today. And we just pray you'd speak to us through uh, these words this morning from Matthew 5 as well, that this is something that we could uh, take on and put into practice uh, in our own life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's these, these verses that I've said, loving your enemies and praying for them. It might feel like a bit of a disconnect for many of us, uh, praying for those who persecute you. Because you might say, well, I'm not particularly persecuted for being a Christian. I'm just like everyone else. But the reality is for many people across the globe, these verses are a present reality. That for lots of people in Asia, lots of people in Africa, lots of people in the Middle East and all over our globe, to stand up for Jesus means persecution means taking a hit, means you're in trouble with the authorities or you're in trouble with your family. Therefore, what Jesus talks about here is not just theory. It's not just idealism. This is a real thing. This is something that you and I, if we follow Christ, put into practice. It's not just living the dream, but something real. It's a very real way of you and I saying, I belong to Jesus. By putting these verses that Jesus talks about this morning into practice. So let's just have a look at them together. I'm just going to read Matthew 5, 38 to 42 first. Um, and then we'll have a look at the second section of Matthew in a little while. This is what Jesus says. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Some very like, real applications there for us, aren't there, that Jesus draws out on how we love people, on how we're a blessing to the people that we're coming into contact with. And he starts it with, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's, Jesus is summing up again a part of the law as he has been doing. He's taking something from the Old Testament and saying, this is what was taught. This is what was right. But I say to you. So they practiced an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Um, and the idea w would mean that justice, compensation, it was all measured. It was all appropriate. There wasn't people taking um, 
revenge and higher in the stakes because it was measured against the crime. So if I gouged out your eye, you would lose your eye. Or if I nicked a thousand pounds off you, you'd give a thousand pounds back and pay some compensation on top of it. It was all measured in order to try and maintain a level of justice, to try and mean that you know everyone was okay. In Islamic countries today, some Islamic countries, they practice it as a way of keeping the peace, in inverted commas. I don't actually think it does it, but that's what they suggest that it does that by having uh, almost a punishment that fits the crime. But it was always to be decided by the authorities. It's not for me to decide what punishment fits the crime if somebody attacks me, but for the authorities to do. And what had happened was the Pharisees and the scribes in their wisdom had taken things that belonged in the court and started applying them to their own personal relationships. So what that meant was it was all kicking off punishments would escalate. So for example, if somebody slashed my tire, I would slash two of their tires. They would slash three of my tires, I would slash their face. Hypothetically. As a, it just got out of control. People were just going one step further, it's going one step further. The whole justice system had just gone out of the window, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. People were just applying it in all the wrong situations. So Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is not how we operate. This is not how we walk as people that follow God. This is how we do it. And he gives three examples. And he starts by saying, do not resist the one who is evil. In some of your translations, it will say the man who wrongs you, which is helpful. So you're not kind of mixing up Satan here. Because when we think of evil, we think of Satan, don't we, rightly. But here Jesus is saying, don't resist the one who wrongs you. Um, If somebody... Uh, well, I'll go into the example in a second. But again, the context is kind of personal relationships, not stuff that's at kind of a court level or an authority level, not to do with armed forces or police or whether we should have wars or rumors of wars or anything like that. But if somebody afflicts you in one of these ways, this is what Jesus talks about doing. And he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Um, Basically, someone will come up to you and use the back of their hand and smash them across the face. I nearly did that, Simon. I know, got close, eh? Um, Because obviously all the strong individuals were right-handed. And they used the back of their right hand. It was a proper insult that you would smack them across their right cheek with the back of your right hand. And Jesus says, if someone comes up to you, just, you know, off the street and smacks you across your right cheek, offer them your left. Which you might think, what? I don't want to take another punch, thank you very much. But this is what Jesus says. Now, it would really hurt that. It's not like a little kind of, you know, a little playful slap. This is a full-on smack to the back of your face. It would really hurt. And uh, when Jesus says, offer them the other cheek here, he's not prohibiting that we just stand there like a doormat if somebody comes up to you and starts beating the living daylights out of you. He's not saying, if you're being abused, stand there and take it. He's not prohibiting self-defense, but rather he's saying, do not be the one who is responsible for escalating the situation. That's what he's trying to say. He's not trying to say, let's all be doormats and not be punched. He's saying, look, if you're being punched, get yourself out of the situation. Don't be hit, but don't hit them back. Don't escalate the situation. Um, I'll tell you a little story that kind of illustrates this perfectly. And now at school... And when I was a teenager, you might find this really hard to believe, okay? That I was small, weedy, and spotty. And not very successful with the ladies either. Can you believe that? I thought it was a foregone conclusion that I would be one of those 
heroes at school. But no, I was a, a bit of a geek and uh, weedy, small and spotty. Um, and um, I think because of that, I was an easy target. I remember once, I live near Blackpool, so I'll let you make your own assumptions about what that means. Um, but groups of ruffians would gather and would stare at you. And if you so happened to look at them, they would say, what are you looking at, mate? And they would come over to you, push you, and say, are you starting? Does that ever happen to you? It's happened to me on numerous occasions. I don't know. Maybe I'll look at them in the wrong way. But that's all I've done is look at them. And they came over, a group of ruffians, and said, are you starting, mate? Um, to which I didn't respond. I didn't do anything. And it was fine. I think they got bored and thought, oh, I'll go and pick on someone else. And they walked off. Now, I think this gave me a false sense of confidence. I think this made me thought, I'm hard here. I can take people. So there was this guy, right, who I knew from school, who was on rollerblades, like our Ben, who rollerblades around. And he was all up in my face, so I pushed him over a wall. Biggest mistake I made in school. If someone's rolling a blade, just leave them alone. Because I pushed this guy over, and I escalated the situation. And I tell you, this guy made my life a misery for years after that. Not just with his rollerblading skills, but he would punch me, he would beat me. I remember being thrown backwards into a holly bush. Painful. And I was bullied, I, I don't know, emotionally, physically, whatever. It wasn't a very nice place to be. And I thought, well, actually, pro okay, he's in the wrong and he's doing some silly stuff. But if I hadn't pushed him, if I hadn't retaliated, if I hadn't escalated the situation here, maybe it would have gone down a different route. You know, it really doesn't matter sometimes. We do this whole thing, don't we? I did this. I've got two younger brothers, and it was always the same. It was, he started it. Therefore, it's okay. Well, they started it. They started calling me names. Well, that person put in a, a terrible challenge. Um, I've only, uh, that reminds me of a, a little football scenario. I've only ever been sent off once, and it's because I karate kicked someone to the chest. That person was my brother. So, therefore, it's okay. I think. But it, it, the lesson in that, because I was banned for a long time, is don't render evil for evil. Don't retaliate. If someone smacks you around, you know, just walks up to you on town on a night out or whatever and smacks you around the chops, don't return the favor. Actually, doing something different and not retaliating stands up for something else. We're not doormats. We're not punch bags. But we don't render evil for evil. We don't hold a grudge. We don't take revenge. And on a side note, sometimes, just sometimes, we can be a little too easy to take offense, can't we? Right? We can take offense a little bit too easily, especially in our kind of culture and, you know, you can't say anything or you can't do anything. Sometimes we just need to chill out a little bit. Sometimes we just need to take a step back from the situation. Our personal honor actually doesn't really matter. What's more important is God's honor. So how we respond to people in our face, saying things about us, doing things to us, boiled down when we come to push comes to shove, is it about my honor or is it about the Lord's honor? The attack on the person here, the retaliation kind of thing, it could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be words spoken by your boss who's always putting you down or someone that's always saying negative things about you. And... Um, there's a guy, a real hero, I think, Martin Luther King, civil rights hero, civil rights activist. And uh, he's a great modern-day example, if you like, isn't he, of what it means to actually not retaliate. Here's a guy whose house uh, was bombed, 
was threatened with death numerous times for the work that he was putting in to try and obtain equal rights between blacks and whites in America, that there wouldn't be any discrimination based on the color of someone's skin. A real hero who was getting bombed, he got stabbed, he was attacked, he was put in prison multiple times, he was betrayed by his friends, but he was in a, a prison uh, I think in, uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to remember where it was, I think, uh, not New York State, but one of the states up that way. And, it, and he wrote this and then preached it later in one of his famous sermons. Hate multiplies hate in a descending spiral of violence and is just as injurious to the person who hates as to the victim. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Martin Luther King knew that responding with violence, responding with retaliation, wasn't the God-honoring way to go about this. So he took a harder path, didn't he? And a path that said, hate multiplies hate, but I'm going to love. I'm going to be a blessing. And the best reason for you not taking revenge on the person who's winding you up or the person who just happens out of the blue to do something to you and you know, to destroy those well-formed revenge plans that we've concocted in our mind is because Jesus tells you to. That's got to always be our baseline. Well, God tells us not to live this way. That should always be enough for us. That if God says to do something, if God says live this way, if we're to follow Christ's example, it's not a vague teaching this to offer the other cheek. It's not, oh, well, what situations do I do that? It's don't retaliate. Don't escalate violence in our personal relationships. Just take Christ as the example of who we follow as Christians. Humiliated, brutally assaulted, verbally abused, spat on, crucified for the sins of the world. Hated, hate, absolutely hated. And yet remain steadfast. And actually, even as he's on the cross, he's praying for us. He's praying for the very people that are abusing him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. An amazing example of what it looks like. He doesn't shout, turn or burn. He shouts, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so he gives us an example with our, kind of, with our interactions with people and how we treat others when they treat us badly. Says a lot about who we're following, whose path we're following after. The second example is with our stuff. He says, if anyone would sue you. And take your tunic. That was a done thing back then. They would take the inner tunic. They could sue you for the inner tunic. But they couldn't sue you for the outer one. Which is why Jesus says, let him have your cloak as well. That's stuff that they can't sue for. That's stuff that they can't take from you. Offer it to them. Go beyond duty with these people. And I do believe this at the bottom of my heart. How much we hold on to stuff says a lot about the God we worship. Especially the stuff of the earth. The things that we have. How tightly we cling to things. Jesus' teaching here is concerned with ourselves. You might be thinking when Jesus says here, you know, if someone sues you for your tunic, offer your cloak. Well, I want my tunic. I want my cloak, Jesus. That person doesn't need it. They're just being a pain. Why should I give it to them? It's mine. But you know what? By going beyond what's expected of us, or expected of human beings at least, we showcase the kingdom of God, don't we? We're, I've, I've had this thing, it's been really bugging me. I've wanted to do it on numerous occasions. But this whole first world problem thing that we project, you know, 
oh, I haven't got clean, no, not clean water, I haven't got hot water today for my shower, or I've worked really long hours today, or my car's broken. I mean, I did it last week, didn't I? Moaning about car salesmen. At least I can buy a car. And they're not all bad, are they, mate? No, there's a few diamonds in the rough of the car sales world. The culture of the world is, oh, it's about me and my problems and woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. But you know what? If we hold on to our stuff loosely, that doesn't happen. Now, that doesn't mean we don't take care of the things that we own and the things that we have and the earth that we live on because we should do. But if we operate from a place of thankfulness to God and realize that actually everything we have is by grace, everything is his really, then we hold on to those things more loosely. Okay, my tunic, fine. Take my jacket as well. That's okay. Because ultimately, it's not mine. It's mine to give away, you might say. It's a way of blessing somebody else. If someone takes a shirt off your back, give them your cloak as well. We take up our cross and follow Jesus. And when we do that, the stuff that we have actually pales into insignificance. Some of the most godly people that I know and have known are all open-handed. They seem to be the most godly people that I know, the most generous people. They hold the things of earth lightly, but they hold tight to the things of eternal worth. They seem to be the most godly people that I come across. People that have got a kingdom mindset. Now, if we don't have that mindset, we spiral into places we don't want to go. There's this story, I came across it this morning, and I had to verify this because Grace said, oh, there's this story that's happened in America, and I thought, this can't be real. But to jump to the punchline, basically, a guy was shot over which chair he sits on in church and killed. So the story goes... That this guy, 27-year-old bloke, comes into church, sits down, and is told, you can't sit there, mate. That's somebody else's chair. Now, he doesn't just get up, which he could have done, you know, and diffuse the situation. Instead, he, you know, gets a little upset that he can't sit. I don't know if this guy's ever been to church before. It could have been his first time. But he doesn't move. And he doesn't move, and there's a bit of verbal argy-bargy going over. And apparently the pastor goes over and diffuses the whole situation and says, you can sit in Maureen's chair, it's okay, she won't mind. And uh, this happened in Pennsylvania just last week. And then this other guy comes in who says, no, this isn't right. This is somebody else's chair. It's not his chair. Whips out a gun in church. I'm not even joking, it's a real story. And so this other guy who sat there is obviously feeling a bit vulnerable, so lamps him in the jaw, so the guy shoots him twice in the chest. And he dies over a chair because it was somebody else's chair. Somebody's property. Well, it wasn't actually their property, was it? (laughs) In the first place, it illustrates my point really well. It's a chair in a church, not our own property. There's some stuff going on there, isn't there? There's a larger point that everything is God's and not ours. That it belongs to him. And actually, if as a church we're getting to a point where we're saying, this is where I sit, you need to move, we're missing the point completely. In fact, we're probably already too far gone. If we're saying, this is my chair, I have to sit here, this is what I do. But it applies to other things as well, not just our chairs. It's, you know, this is mine. You can't take that from me. We're missing the point. It's okay that we can give stuff away. We can be generous 
it's, again, it comes back to our personal honour, doesn't it? Well, this is mine, this is my identity, you can't take that from me. Well, what if we were to give it away? What if we hold that eternal perspective that lives matter more than stuff? Wouldn't that be countercultural? That people are more important than the stuff that we own and the things that we have, right? Wouldn't that send a message to the world that says, it's all about the stuff I've got and people, well, I don't care about them. That's probably why there's over 200 people on the waiting list for people to see elderly people in our town to visit them because people are more concerned with their stuff than loving people. That's the world we live in. And if we're following Christ, we've got to walk to a different tune, haven't we? We've got to, we've got to be seen as something very different. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If they take the shirt off your back, give them your tunic as well. Give it away. It's not yours anyway. Go the extra mile. And he underlines that with this one sense of time and duty. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And the Jews, at the time Jesus is writing, well, not writing, but speaking, uh, under Roman occupation. And what would happen is you could be fishing or working on your wood work stuff or whatever you were doing. And a Roman could come up to you with a load of military stuff or just a load of bags and say, right, you need to take this a mile to the next place and someone else will take it on from there. You were conscripted. You didn't have a choice. You had to do that. And Jesus says, when they do that, don't just take it one, take it two. Don't just do the bare minimum. Don't do, don't do it resentfully. Just get on with it. Do it joyfully. And when you get to that second mile, they'll be dumbfounded. Because they'll be like, who are you? What are you doing here? Why have you brought these bags two miles instead of one? You're only supposed to bring it one. Good opportunity for a little conversation there, isn't there? Why have you brought the bags two miles? Well, let me tell you, because I serve somebody other than myself. I serve a God who asks me to go the extra mile. Hence the statement. Have you ever thought about that? Going the extra mile? It's a God thing to go the extra mile for people. So, I don't know what it could be. At home, it could be doing the chores without being asked to be doing them. Applies to my own self too. Clean the kitchen without being asked to clean the kitchen. It could be working those extra hours that your boss has asked you to work without grimacing and hating them. It could be working even extra hours for the bless, you know, to bless your company, to bless your town, to bless people, and doing it with a smile on your face. Why would we do that? That sounds bizarre. We might not even get paid for the extra. Why would we do that? Because when we go mile two, people start asking questions. Because when we go above and beyond the call of duty or what is expected of us, people start saying, why? Why are you living in this way? We're showcasing the kingdom of God. So, you know, maybe you can think about that. Maybe we can change up our diaries slightly in order to bless people. Elder friends is a great way of demonstrating that. But there might be other things. There might be things you're already doing, but you can invest and bless the lives of others. It's a steep learning curve. And I think it's a learning curve that we never quite come off. Because there's always further we could go. There's always more that we can do. There's always others that we can bless. So the point of all that Jesus is saying here is, don't just not take revenge, but seek to be a blessing at the same time. So the people that are making life a little difficult for you, don't just, don't, one, don't take revenge on them, but bless them. Give to the one in need. That's verse 42. Don't refuse them. 
You know, our faith is not just for now, is it? But it's to be worked out, lived out, demonstrated, dying to self, giving away, going beyond the expectations. Don't return the punch. Offer your cloak. Go two miles. Because it models and mirrors the God who went the extra mile for us. It models and mirrors the one who gave everything for us. Didn't just give us his cloak. Gave us himself upon the cross. Dying in our place. Because of our sin, justice, and we're all for justice, justice demanded death. So Jesus steps in. Takes us from hell. Takes the hit and gives us heaven. And not just takes that, blesses us. And given us everlasting life. Given us hope for the future. Given us more than we could ever, ever understand and get our head around. Not only does he not take revenge. He blesses us. He models what love looks like. And it's an active thing, isn't it? It's not just hypothetical. Jesus dying on the cross wasn't just hypothetical. He really did it. He demonstrated what love looks like. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, actually, that isn't in the Old Testament. (laughs) That's just the way that the Pharisees had twisted the words of Scripture. Interesting point. But Jesus says, I say to you, no, 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 no. We don't hate your enemy. We don't hate anybody here. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You see, what had happened, and what happens to our hearts too, is this. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees would love the Pharisees. The Jewish people would love the Jewish people. They considered that fellow Jews were their neighbors. So therefore, they were fulfilling the law. But what that also meant was, well, if they're my neighbors, then the Samaritans, they're not. So I don't have to love them. In fact, I can hate them because I'm not told to love them because they're not really my neighbor. That's what they've done. They've drawn lines based on race or prejudice or sex or whatever they'd chosen. In this case, it was race. But we do it all the time, don't we? I love the people that are kind of like me. But mm, not so much. It's kind of what Jesus is driving here when he talks about what love looks like. It is really hard, as I said at the start, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And it's an ongoing battle. There's still an ongoing battle in my own heart with people years and years ago or whatever, you know. There'll be situations where sometimes you've got to catch yourself and say, actually, no, I love this person. I'm going to pray for this person. It's an ongoing thing and something that is difficult. But Martin Luther King, I think, wisely commented, didn't he? Hate spirals hate. And actually, we become the victims of hate as much as that person. It does no good to our hearts to hold resentment towards people, to hold anger and bitterness and wrath towards people. It does no good to hear, does it? The Pharisees had redefined neighbor to mean people like them. Because it's easy. It is easy or easier to love people just like you. Here's the challenge. Loving people that you don't necessarily get on with. Loving people that have got a different opinion to you. Loving people that vote a different political way to you. Loving people that hurt you. 
or have hurt you in the past. And we have to come to that swift conclusion that ultimately, people are not a real enemy, are they? That we have one enemy who works behind the scenes. But people are people who are created in the image of God. That God would love to have a relationship with. And we might be that very means of pointing the way towards Christ by showing the love of God to those people. We love those who stand in opposition to us. We love those who make life difficult. Love those who hate you, just as Christ did. Now, if Christ hadn't, maybe we'd have a warrant not to as well. But Christ loved us. Colossians says, while we were the enemies of God. And there's those brilliant verses in Romans 5.8. God shows his love for you. God shows his love for us. That while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Whilst we were far off. We weren't best mates at one time, me and God. We weren't in a relationship. The way I live my life actually said, I hate you, God. And yet God still loves me. God still sends Jesus for me. Jesus still comes and dies in our place, even when we're the enemies of God. And I think I've said this before, it might have just been in conversations, and I had this kind of, you know sometimes in your Christian walk you get like a, a eureka light bulb moment. Have you ever heard it said that if you were the only person on the planet, Christ would have still come and died for you? Has anyone ever said that to you? Right? I've heard it quite a lot. I've said it to people. I think it's true that Jesus loves us so much that he takes the hit for every single individual. But I had this eureka moment that if I was the only person on the earth, who's the one that's nailing the nails into his, into his wrists and into his feet? If I'm the only person, who's the one that's afflicting the pain upon Jesus? Me. And he still takes the hit. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he cares for us. Even when we're the ones that are driving nails into his wrists, we're mocking him, we're taunting him, we're hating him. He takes the hit so that we can have a relationship with God through faith in Christ alone. He loves us. And that's the kind of love we're dealing with. That's the kind of love we're talking about. That's the kind of love we want to show to the world because God loves them. More than anything else. Cherishes them. Holds people valuable. We should long to see people as God sees them. To love as God loves. Which is why Jesus says, pray for them. It's why he says, pray for those who persecute you. Because prayer not only changes situations, but changes our hearts. You know that? Prayer changes us. We position ourselves before God. It changes us when we're in the presence. When we're wanting to be with him, walk with him, talk with him. It changes our hearts. You cannot earnestly pray for someone and it be completely genuine and want the best for them whilst hating them. You can't do it. You can't pray, God, would you be loving and bless them beyond all measure whilst hating them. I've tried. You can't do it. So Jesus says, pray for them. Those people that are causing you trouble, start praying for them now. 
you know, if you've got a boss at work who's making life really difficult, every day on the way to work, start praying for them. Because not only does it change situations, but it changes our hearts. And over time, we start to see us softening towards them, showing love towards them. Why? Because we've got more of God the Holy Spirit in here and less of us. More of God operating in our hearts. We don't wait, we start praying. And why? Why do all this stuff that Jesus says? Why take hits? Why go out of our way to help people? Why give the jacket off our back? Why do all that? So God's glorified. So that God's honored. So that people come to faith. So that lives are transformed. So that people aren't getting shot over whether they're sat in a chair in church or not. But people are meeting Jesus. Because people are living countercultural lives that demonstrate it. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is what Jesus goes on to say. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, common grace that we breathe, that we're here, that we have rain for our crops and sunshine occasionally for our tans. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do that? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I just want to ask you this one question. Just to, it's a good question, actually, to kind of finish before we take communion together. And Jesus here asks a question. What more are you doing than others? Do you see that in the text? What more are you doing? Tax collectors love tax collectors. Gentiles love Gentiles. But you're my child. You're my son, you're my daughter. What more are you doing, he says, compared to everyone else? Because we have to love to a higher standard than the rest of the world. We don't just love people who are in our family or our race or our wealth or our sex. We have a love that has no boundaries. We have a love that goes across continents and people groups and whatever it might be. Even the tax collectors love the tax collectors. What more are we doing? Came across this great quote with an Open Doors partner church, which I'm proud to say, um, supporting the persecuted church all across the world. I think that's an amazing thing. And uh, Brother Andrew, who founded that movement, I've, I've added to it. So I've taken a really good quote and probably made it worse. But here we go. This is what he says. Um, and I think it's a great quote that just sums up what we're doing. You know, we're loving people, and it's the biggest countercultural way of us demonstrating that we serve God, that we know God, is to love our enemies. And this is what Brother Andrew says, and I think it sums up the world that we live in today a little bit, doesn't it? The bigger the darkness, the easier it is to spot your little light. And I've just added this little bit to the end of it. You've just got to step out and let it be seen. The bigger the darkness, the bigger the stuff going on in the world or in our personal relationships or at work and how difficult things is, the easier it should be to spot your little light. But we've got to step out and let it be seen. We've got to love. We've got to go the extra mile. We've got to be a blessing. We've got to not take vengeance. We've got to love unconditionally as God. God as Christ loves us. And that's the gospel, isn't it? And that's the outworking of this gospel in our hearts. 
Christ died for me, so I die to self and live for him. And it's a daily thing and a daily battle for all of us, I'm sure. The bigger the darkness, the easier it should be to spot your little light. You've just got to step out and let it be seen.